If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Plus, it's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Dave Sobel, how's it going, man? I'm just as good as everybody else at home and healthy, which is the uh, the first requirement, right? So I'm, I hit all those yeah. marks. Well, well, that's very good. I'm, I'm glad that you're home. I'm glad you're healthy. So uh, I, you struck me with, with something. I, I, I just had a revelation that you are no longer with SolarWinds. No, I left SolarWinds back uh, kind of Q3 timeframe of last year. So I've been independent for a while. All right. So I've, I, I just started to dabble in the stock market uh, thanks to this, you know, worldwide pandemic. Yes. And SolarWinds is in my watch list. And uh, it's, it's interesting just watching all of these stocks go crazy right now. It, it, they're all just, you know, up and down, you know, 10% here, 50% there. I watched one go up like 200% one day. I'm like, what is happening? The market like, is crazy. The market is crazy. And I, and I'm, I am still a shoulder, uh, solar wind shareholder. So like I want, I'll even say I hold, I hold some solar wind stock. Um, yeah, the market's crazy. Uh, and people are, because people always equate the stock market to the economy. And it is super important to recognize that they are not the same thing. They are distinctly not the same thing. That is speculative about company performance in the future. And if you, th and, and thus it's all over the place because there's a ton of uncertainty. Nobody really knows. So it's going to be a wild ride for those who trade stocks. All right. So yeah, I've, I've been having fun, uh, losing money left and right. <laughs> if, as long as you're comfortable with that, with that, you know, then, then trade away. <laughs> I've had, uh, this is my third day in a row of like minus a hundred dollars. Right. And like I, I'm, I'm playing around with like chump change. You know, I, at one point I had like $1,300 in my Robinhood account. You know, I'm not, I'm not gambling with thousands and thousands of dollars, right. but I do understand I'm gambling. So <laughs> it is, it is. If, if you look at it that way, it can be, you can, you can look at it and definitely have fun with it. I mean, I, you know, I, I think yeah. it's an interesting time to be doing that. Obviously I'm in, I'm invested in the market in two ways. You know, I'm invested in the market from a retirement perspective, you know, I've got mm -hmm. long-term investments in that point. And I'm also invested in the market with, uh, you know, with some stock holdings, where you know mostly from before <laughs> that I'm dead. at this point I'm now just saying well let's ride this out and see what happens with them. yeah absolutely so before solar winds talk talk to me about kind of of what your your history was like in the MSP channel. Sure. It, so I, I always, always like to start with my actual education background so people know like more of my perspective is. So I hold, sure. I have a 
Bachelor of Science in Computer Science. I am an actual, you know, I actually have a degree in computer science. Thought I was always going to be a programmer. Started my career as a developer and consultant for a while. So I did that, and and I did a bunch of interesting stuff for publicly traded companies, and and I wrote some code that's probably still somewhere in a back end for a bank, uh, tying their legacy systems to the web. I did some stuff like that, and then I I moved over and in. Modern parlance, because this was a late '90s, early 2000s. But in modern parlance, I helped build a cloud system for online uh, transactions, contract negotiations, including secure uh, digital signatures. I was a product manager for all of that kind of stuff, and that all imploded in 2002 during that market. Uh, you know, when and the way I always love is we had a pretty good technology and we had awful salespeople, uh, and so. The whole technology team lost their jobs, and we lost our jobs on Valentine's Day of 2002. And that was a that's an important, a memorable day for me because I lost my job. I proposed to my now wife, and the next day decided I was going to try my hand at a business because, uh, yeah. So I was like, implode your life all in the same day. And that's a good time. It totally was, and right in the middle of a down a down economic time too. So this is you know this is sort of my third cycle with business trying to do that. Uh, so for me, that was when it, when the MSP started. And I said to myself, either I'm going to get a job, I'm going to go back and get a job, or this business thing will work. And we signed our first managed services deal in April of that year for roughly about $12,000 a month managed services contract servicing healthcare providers in, in the D.C. metro area, which is where I live. Yeah. Uh, so not a bad first managed services deal. <laughs> and that's all in the time. We didn't even call it managed services. We just called it outsourced IT. And it, but it was, it had all the basic pieces to it. It was around uh, outcome-based delivery, saying we're going to maintain your network and here's how we're going to do it. And this is the service level we're going to do it. It included some on, mostly on-site versions of that. They all use people to do it because it was 2002. But I pivoted over quickly over time to doing it all remotely. And I built that MSP from that first contract until I sold that business in, at the end of 2011. Did the managed services thing, uh, and I wrote a book on virtualization and how to take that out to the to the managed services market. I was heavily involved with CompTIA, so I was uh, on the managed services executive council, and I helped found the mobility community. And uh, for those that that followed the HTG peer groups, I helped found. I actually took HTG to Europe. I was the guy who founded it in the UK. Uh, so I was kind of all over the map with these uh, with all of the community stuff during my managed services time. I love to speak. It would give presentations all the time, uh, did webinars, the, the whole thing. And then I, when it was, I, I had that moment kind of the end of 2011 when it was, it felt like the right time to sell. Uh, and there was some events in the business that, that made me think either I'm going to be at this for a while doing some building, or I should use this as an opportunity to sell. And I, and I did. And I always look back and I'm really pleased with the way that transaction went down. I'm still friends with the guys that, that bought it. Uh, the guys over at Network Depot here in the DC metro area bought it. Uh, and then I jumped over to Level Platforms. Back when level platforms was a thing, and I I was I worked with Dan I worked for Dan Wensley and I was uh, co-workers and and peers with Rob Ray so so we were the you know we were the going around building out that uh you know that business and we I worked there almost two years I had no idea that Rob Ray was at level platforms 
He was prior to Datto. He and I, he was at level platforms uh, six years, eight years or something like oh, that. Wow. And I was there the the last two or so. Uh, Rob and I are to this day still still good friends. Uh, you know, worked. He was he was director of sales. I was director of community. We both worked for Dan. Uh, that was a great that was a great period of time. It was a it was a, a great fun to get that over the over the line. And of course, we sold level platforms to AVG was the way that that went. And then uh, we all went different directions. Dan went off to do some consulting. Of course, now he's been through a couple of places. Rob, of course, went to Datto. And I went to GFI. And my mission there was to do the same thing again, as I was going to build up the community endeavors at GFI. So I, I went from the GFI logic now through the sale to when we sold that business to SolarWinds. And I was with SolarWinds for three years. So it was a total of six between GFI Logic Now and SolarWinds. So why why did what what happened to make GFI turn into Logic Now? What what happened there? Yeah, so it, it, it actually if if you understood the the mechanisms of what GFI was, it makes a lot of sense. So when I joined GFI, we were considering an IPO. Actually, it was pretty close to to when that was all going to happen. And uh, Walter Scott, of course, was the CEO, and Walt pulled that back uh, because it wasn't the valuation that he thought he he wanted to to take it out with. And so instead, what he what he worked with the investors and and he had, there were three divisions to that business. The first was the traditional GFI business, so those on premise software packages that people were familiar with, you know, the mail protection products and some of the on on premise stuff. There was at the time GFI owned TeamViewer, which a lot of people don't necessarily always remember that we that we owned TeamViewer at the time. I did and. That. Yep. And we owned what was GFI Max, which was yep. the cloud RMM division. It was three divisions of the business. Walt, who is a, 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 a freaking genius when it comes to this stuff, uh, looked at, he's great at seeing the way these things all get assembled, or in this case, how it gets pulled apart. And what he did then was he sold TeamViewer to, he sold off the TeamViewer business for a, an ungodly amount of money. And then he looked at what was left and he says, you know, the valuable bit is the cloud business. So I'm going to split it again. And he split off the cloud business from the GFI business because he only had two divisions. GFI had the name recognition with all of their own like on-premise products. So it made sense to keep that branding. And then, of course, he needed a name for the new thing. And he looked... I, he's so funny this way that he looked at his list of stuff he owned. He had previously purchased a product that is now or or was at the time Service Desk, which was called Logic Now. So he owned this brand in this domain name. And he goes, call it that. I own that. <laughs> and, and he took that out. And we became Logic Now uh, because he was – he. You know, his plan, unbeknownst at some level to all of us, was to sell that business, uh, which he then did to SolarWinds. That's amazing. Yeah, that guy is it, a genius. He is. A, he he is. He. I. I've. I really enjoyed working for Walt. Uh, I. It, he's a. He's a, a taskmaster, and I appreciated everything about it when when I when I learned exactly the the way he thought, and I learned so much from the experience. Um, and but he really gets the way that technology gets assembled, and the value of it either combined or pulled apart. He really is understands those those mechanisms. So that's what that's kind of the the short version of that story. That's what happened. 
And of course, SolarWinds bought it. Uh, Walt, you know, Walt be- became for a period of time part of the management team, uh, but then exited the business, of course. And then it got taken over by, uh, of course, Kevin Thompson is the CEO at SolarWinds. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Paliuka was the was became the the general manager for the MSP group, and of course, still leads that to this day. And today, you're like you said, you're not with SolarWinds. Yep. So what what the heck are you doing? Are you just you know, you're, you're, I would say you're, you know, going to the beach every day, sipping mojitos. But first of all, I don't think DC has a beach. And second of all, I'm sure all the beaches are closed. So yeah, both true statements. So for me, so if you, if you look at in context of what I did, so I was with solar winds for three years, the, the acquisition of course now is almost four years old. It'll be four years in June. Um, and so I was with it three years and I, and I did what I wanted to do. I'd never take gone with a company IPO. I always look at these moves from my perspective as, as a learn, like a learn. What am I learning and growing on as when I make my moves career wise? And for me, it, it, I, I, I learned a lot going into, it's the biggest company I'd ever worked for. I learned the process of going IPO. I learned what it's like during what that period of, you know, the, the silent period is like, the quiet period is like. I learned post. I learned a lot of the, the mechanisms of what it's like to work for a public traded company, but it had reached its point of, uh, where I felt like, okay, I'd gotten my experience out of this. I, I learned what I came here to learn and it was time to try something else. So for me, what I then said is, is is that I looked at the market and I said, you know, this is a different market than it was uh, the last time I pivoted. Because the last time I pivoted was going from MSP. And I said, what I want to learn is I want to learn a vendor. I want to understand the mechanism, the financials, the how you build that side of the business. And this time, when I looked around the market, I said, you know, this it's an interesting time now. Uh, there's a lot more maturity. There's a lot of businesses that are are matured all different spectrum. And there's a really healthy ecosystem of uh, sort of what I look at as sort of third party uh, people around it. Pe- people like you, Steve, like that are that are adding real value to the channel with uh, educational content for MSPs or that are that are you know, that are doing that kind of stuff. But when I analyzed the market, I said, you know what I actually think is missing? is I think that there's missing a critical voice of analysis that speaks for the solution providers. I always like to draw this triangle now. And I I say, look, if you think about the media that covers technology, I'll put it into three buckets. The first is the broad business media, right? Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, uh, there's a a whole bunch of people that cover business news, CNBC, all of these people. And they love two kinds of companies. They like big companies and they like consumer facing companies. They don't tend to really love, uh, services companies and they don't particularly don't seem to like services companies in the small business. You know, like yeah. it, it, we're hard to see, right? If you think, if you think about it. So you don't get a ton of coverage there. If I then go look at the tech media, you've got, uh, The Verge, you've got CNET, you've got, uh, Protocol, you've got a whole bunch of people. And actually kind of have the same thing. Love big big business, love Silicon Valley, love consumer-facing tech, eh, not so much with services, right? Like, like we don't go there to get insights and analysis. And then if I turn to the, what I will sort of now call channel press, right? You've got a lot of businesses there that are 
ultimately actually more events businesses than they are media businesses. If you break down a lot of what companies like uh, Channel Pro is trying to do, what uh, CRN is trying to do, they have some journalism components to it. But they are a lot of their business is events, right? It's getting people together for educational content. They are distinctly a, a, a mechanism for vendors to deliver messaging out to the masses. Totally a needed space. I felt like there was a need, particularly with the large amounts of money that have come into our space, particularly with the private equity guys, and then with the growing reg- moves towards regulation and the critical eye technology is taking now that we are a more mature business, who is sort of speaking truth to power on these? And I said, you know what? I can complain about it or I can go try and do something about it. And that was my thinking for what I'm doing now. So I decided, you know, I'm going to take my gift of gab and my thinking on the way that I like to present and the way that I like to, to do data analysis. And I said, rather than, than kind of go out there and do the, the thing I might have done, like from a consulting perspective, I'm going to actually start putting out podcasts and video content. And where my I look at thinking about my audience as I want to talk to the business owner who runs a technology services business. Note that I use words bigger than just MSP because an MSP is a kind of technology services business. I want those guys to get an analysis and information that is thinking about them. So my flagship product, as it will, is a podcast, a daily podcast called The Business of Tech. It is five minutes. <laughs> it is five minutes a day so that you can listen on whatever format you want. I'm on Amazon devices. I'm on podcatchers, like whatever, whatever you want to catch to get a couple of stories. And then in my piece that I call, Why Do You Care?, which is an analysis of why I think this move matters for technology services businesses. And by the way, that does include the vendors too. I've got commentary and information for the vendors too because I've run that business as well. So that's what I'm up to now because I really think we're at a really interesting time. There's a couple of, we're a maturing industry because, and you can see this in the, the massive amounts of, of money that's flowing into the space. But we're also maturing industry because you can also see the eyes of regulators. You know, I did a story recently on the, on the show where I interviewed the Louisiana Secretary of State. And we talked about the breaches that have happened across the state of Louisiana. And one of the things that he was really sharp on was he recognized that a lot of those breaches happened at small municipalities, small local governments, small organizations. And he intimately understood that they were serviced by these organizations called MSPs. He knew the term. He knew the offering. This is the Louisiana Secretary of State, not some guy I would expect like knowing our industry. He knew the difference between an MSP and an MSSP. He knew the differences on why the different organizations functioned the way they did. And what he then did was he had gone to a meeting of fellow secretaries of state and he told them, you need to worry about these MSPs. They're not protecting you. They're a problem. I see. (laughs) 
And he has gone so far as to work with fellow legislators in the Louisiana State uh, Assembly there. He's working on legislation to ask MSPs and MSSPs to register with his office after defining the terms. And let me then close this line of thinking by saying to you that the Secretary of State for the state of Louisiana is a pro-business Republican. This is not a <laughs> this is not a, uh, you know, somebody who would who I would assume is saying like this is not a guy who is heavy on regulation. But right. his statement says, is, look, if the industry isn't going to regulate itself, we need to step in. That's a serious trend. And so for me, you know, if you, you ask like what I'm up to. Look, there's tons of information and great conversations going on about pricing and strategy and build your business. But I want to have some conversations about this stuff, like the regulation that's coming or what big tech is doing to us as an industry with our privacy problems. Or what about what is the motivation of these big PE companies? You know, what are they doing? Are they adding real value? You know, are they adding real value to the space? They're all buying up everybody, but have they added anything? Are these are we holding our vendors accountable to delivering actual solutions? We're the customer, right? We should have these. These are tough conversations. I want to have those conversations. And that, for me, is what the podcast and what my media efforts are around. That's really awesome, man. So, <laughs> well, thank you. So what, what would you say... That kind of stuff is really cool, but I think in in my experience, a lot of the little MSPs might not care about stuff like that because they feel like they're going to fly under the radar, you know? Yep. Well, let me let me observe that they won't. So, so there's a couple of, I mean, there's a, and there's a lot of reasons why they won't. So let's, let's even, first off, I just gave you a great example of a lawmaker who is going to move on this space. He's actively doing on doing it. Now, I, his, he's having conversations with some of the trade organizations. So it's not that he's just going off on his own. He wants to work with the industry. He's having conversations with the trade organizations, trade organizations that even small MSPs, can join for free, <laughs> like can join for free and get involved with, you know, I'll point to CompTIA. You can get involved with CompTIA for free and start having conversations with your, with the trade association that represents us and be part of that conversation. But if you think you're going to be immune from regulation, you're crazy. And additionally, you can see it coming from other markets. I've had been having conversations with solution providers and MSPs who are telling me that their insurance companies are now looking at them for their cyber insurance and asking really tough questions about the way they run their business in order to hold them to, to insure them. Interesting. Like, I had one solution provider who, told, who was telling me that uh, he was actually denied his renewal because he ran his RMM software on-prem. And the, uh, the insurance company had determined that that was too high a risk and they weren't going to renew him because that's not best practice in their mind. So if you which, don't... It, <laughs> which is insane because, you know, as, as MSPs... I think we still love the idea of hosting things on-prem 
because then we know here here we can control the security of this server. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll disagree and shrug and go. Yeah, you can't do better than a large company with armies of people and a, and a knock. But I would I would is- agree with that and say that most MSPs truly can't. Right, but most so, MSPs think they can. Think they can, but thi- but but I but that's a whole time. We won't go down that rabbit hole. The <laughs> reason I bring this insurance bit up is is that look, other industries are looking at ours and now t- determining that we're the risk problem. <laughs> we're the risk. You've got regulators that are starting to look at the space. Go, huh? That's where the some of the breaches are happening in these small companies. They're not ha- they're not getting the security level you've got. You've got insurance companies going, "Huh, the IT providers, how do I know if they're any good?" Well, now I'm going to use things like do they run their software on-prem as a criteria because I've got no way of knowing. We've got pressures that are coming at our industry. You're not going to fly under the radar of that. If your local legislature is asking you to register, if your insurance company is digging into your organization, you're not going to fly underneath those. And you can either let those things happen to you or you can start becoming informed and understand what's coming. And and then we can have actual conversations about this. That's really cool. And remind everyone, what is the name of your podcast? Sure. It's called The Business of Tech. It is a five-minute podcast every day. It's designed to add, make it easy to join, you know, do your business. With all the links are on my website at mspradio.com. mspradio.com. Everything spelled the way someone would expect it to be spelled, right? Exactly. I've owned that domain for like a decade. And when I finally had this idea uh, of taking this out, I was like, you know what? I'll just light that up and that'll be the website that I put things on. And the podcast is The Business of Tech. Love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Because right, these are and these are factors. These are things that I've been having thoughts on pre-pandemic. Like this is all kind of my pre-pandemic thinking. I've got additional stuff post-pandemic, of course, too. The changes to the market, but I don't think that stuff's going away. You know, these it may be sidelined for a short period of time while regulators, for example, are a little busier on you know keeping the economy afloat. But we've all seen the uptake in in cyber crime right now. Uh To think to think that that's going away would be crazy because those are those problems are the the pandemic is acting as an accelerant on everything, and I think this is just one more trend that is going to get more and more of a problem is as the as the market has matured i i wish i could disagree with you <laughs> I, I i don't like you know, this is one of the i have lots of statements where i say all the time i would love to be wrong but the data tells me i'm right this is I, i've got way too much evidence around this so for me it's the i want to spend time thinking about and working on these bigger problems because that's where we need some collective action and the first bit really it has to be education for me, it's the like, let's come up to speed about the conversations on this stuff around what's going on with regulation, keeping an eye on on what's happening in those spaces, getting people thinking about it, having those conversations, and, and then moving from there. So that so these these big things. The other bit that, that I link this to is I have lots of conversations around big tech and ethics. It's it's I mean, look. This morning, my I'm I'm working. I'm thinking about the what I'm working on for the sh- the show today. 
Facebook did a settlement with their content moderators for fifty million. I think it's fifty million dollars payout. Uh, of course, they they have uh, not accepted any responsibility for some of the problems with with their no guilt or acknowledgement of that. But the problem has been exposed by the way they treat their content moderators via outsourcing. Right. And this is, and everybody might think, well, what is, what does this mean? You know, this doesn't mean anything to me. Well, let's take a look at kind of Facebook, Google, YouTube. Tech as an industry had a pretty great trust rating all the way through 2016. 70% of people surveyed by Pew Research trusted technology and trusted technology companies. Since 2016 to now, it's been a 20 point drop. Wow. In that trust level. Yeah. That's 20. Huge, man. It's huge. <laughs> so, right. So when surveyed now, 20 points less number of people, roughly about 50% say they trust technology companies versus 70% we enjoyed for years going into t- up to 2016. Wow. Right. <laughs> so, so these big tech can, companies. What can we as incredibly smaller tech companies. What can we do to make sure that we are trusted? Yeah. So there, so there's a lot of, th- I, I look at that and say, there's a lot of things that we can do. And the first, the place that I find most interesting is to actually start having conversations with customers about their data, about the way they manage data, particularly their data on their own customers. We've all talked about things like privacy protections, California's privacy laws or GDPR in Europe, all of these things as like compliance offerings. I look at it and say, you know what, actually, instead, why don't we have conversations with our customers about what co- data they are actually collecting, not just to make sure we t- tick a tick box from a compliance perspective, but are we collecting just the right data, not too much data? To help our customers treat their own customers responsibly. And by the way, let me observe, it's kind of hard. I don't mind saying that this is harder work to do, but it's also way more valuable, way more better bill rates, and way more profitable. What do you want to have a conversation about? Do you want to have a conversation with somebody about their antivirus and their security profile and backups? Or do you want to get into their business and talk about what data do you collect? How do you collect data? What's being, what are you monitoring on your own customers? Let's make sure that you're only collecting data you know, that you are telling your own customers about that. Oh, and by the way, we're going to do the same things for ourselves, like our business. This is what we collect. This is what we track. This is how we use it. And this is, and we're clear about that so that we can take some stands. Oh, and by the way, then push back on companies that aren't compliant up the stream and be aware of what those implications are for the big companies and, and the way they're treating their data and what it means as an industry. That's fantastic. I love that. You, <laughs> I think there's super opportunity there. Like it, it's really such is. a better co- such a better conversation. And let's take this problem and go solve it. Because by the way, that's what we do, right? As an industry, we, we services providers have always identified customer pain points and go solve it. Well, here's one, everybody. 20-point drop in trust to technology companies. I can point to the big guys and say, this is their fault, 
right? They kind of did this to us. Mm -hmm. So let's push back. Let's go help customers understand what data is being collected, give them insight into it, and then get in and, and make sure that their own business, that they're operating the way that they want to, and they can communicate that back out to their own customers. So the the one thing that I would like to throw out there is this is actually a strategy that I have employed. Um, looking at, I gotta be careful how I say this because people could take this the wrong way, but looking at my client's data um, sure. to help them understand, hey, here's what you've got going on. I have not yet gone into the conversation of let's talk about what you're collecting from customers and storing. Uh, but let's, let's take this full circle with my SolarWinds MSP RMM, uh, AKA logic now, AKA G, right. <laughs> AKA hound dog. Um, yep. with, with that, I, I would use the, um, the risk intelligence and I would run some reports for my clients and, uh, my clients have loved it, man. I've actually said, Hey, how about I run some risk reports for you? I don't charge them. I mean, what's, what's an extra dollar or whatever it is per workstation for the whole month to run some yep. reports yep. and then, and then sit down with them and just go over the report. And I can even explain to them, Hey, here's some metrics of, uh, where we came up with these numbers as far as what it actually would cost you if, if you had a breach. Here's, here's, I, I, uh, I believe it's the Poneman Institute yep. is, is where we were able to show some numbers. I, I keep wanting to call it the Pokemon Institute. <laughs> um, it is, as a gamer, it's a good reference. Yeah. They've yeah. got it. Cause they've got numbers that, that you, what you're doing then is attaching the potential value of a breach against that data. What yes. I would say is look, go the, the next step, the additional level of value you can deliver is say, Let's talk about what you actually need to be collecting and make sure we're purging the stuff that we shouldn't have because we can reduce, we not only are we reducing our risk, we're going one step further and we can communicate with our customers. This is what we collect about you. This is how we use it. And this is what we do with it. What actually you do find is most customers, when you explain to them what you're doing with data, tend to be pretty comfortable with it. It's the lack of knowing or finding out later that you did something with the data that are getting these companies into trouble. That's always been the problem. We don't, we at some level don't mind giving some data in exchange for value. Like, for example, you know, I, I, I use Google Maps, right? I don't mind giving them the data in order to get map data, in order to get directional data. What I don't like fi finding out is, is that they then sold that data down the road, you know, to somebody that I wasn't aware of. If I knew about it at the time, I'm probably comfortable with saying that. It's the surprise later. So just don't do those things and take on the problem directly. Yeah, and and I think that's one thing that really, really upsets a lot of people, especially I find MSPs are actually the ones that are most sensitive and paranoid about their personally identifying information. Um, and I think it's because we as MSPs have seen what all the bad guys are doing out there with it, and even some of the good guys. Uh, and I don't, I mean, not to say that the good guys are doing bad things, they are just uh, 
doing things that I don't want them to do. Right. You know so take I mean? that take that vigilance, take that perspective, and make it into an asset. You talk about like how do you how do you make yourself trusted? Take that vigilance and make it an asset and talk about it and promote it and take it out. And I, I like talking about this kind of stuff because this is way higher value than the stuff that we like to debate, right? Like we're, I, I say always, I was laughing at one of the, my rules for myself was I was never going to sit in another MSP pricing panel as long as I live. I'm just Let's not interested. Let's do right. it. Nope. I have no interest in, I will never participate again. I do not care. There's 5,000 books, including Carl's probably written three during the time that we've been recording this podcast because the guy writes more books than anybody. But I like that's covered territory. There's so much, so much information covered territory. I like this conversation because this is like seriously high value stuff. This is the stuff that when we talk about data management, big consulting firms charge hundreds of dollars an hour to to big customers to do this kind of analysis. Now, do I do I think that a typical MSP is going to charge hundreds of dollars an hour to their smaller customers? I guess I'd love them to, but well, I, I don't think somebody's walking in there with a $400 an hour rate kind of thing talking about these kinds of things. But do I think they're premium? Absolutely. This is the kind of stuff that is, we're not quibbling over rate. This is, you're the expert. There's nobody else out there doing this smart, not at that level. You're blowing away your competition by having conversations like this. We're not comparing MSP plans at that point. You're the only guy on the block having the conversation about, well, I'm going to analyze your data and I'm going to make sure that we're talking about what you're actually leveraging and what you're not and what we ought to throw out and how we ought to have compliance statements with to your out to your customers to show your real value and expertise. That's totally new new territory. So, so I know you said you'd never be part of a pricing panel again, but I do have to ask you. Sure. A, a philosophical pricing question. Okay. All right. Well. So would you agree that what we do is absolutely mission critical for many types of businesses? Yes. Oh, 100%. 100%. Again, and I, I will even extend that by saying I have law. The reason I'm interested in regulation at the level that I am is because I have always thought our industry has to make a choice at some point. We're going to go one of two directions. Certification of a business is coming. It is comical to me that we as technology industry have gone as long as we have without having to be regulated at some level. Now, who do you want to be regulated like? Do you want to be regulated like the plumber or the car repair guy? Or do you want to be regulated like the doctor or the lawyer? And that's exactly (laughs) where I was going, man, because right now I feel like we're charging plumber and car repair rates. And we're acting like it too, by the way. We're acting like it too because, because it's easy to hang up a shop, right? And mm-hmm. just, and like, you know, hang your credential out the door and say, I'm a, I'm a car repair guy. And by the way, no, we're just direct to car repair guy. That's a skill I can't do. I'm, that, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but that's, they don't charge the level that a lawyer does, right? Or a doctor does. Like that's right. a whole, and, and we're, or, a, or an accountant. 
right? Another great example for us is accountancy. And they're all regulated by state, local, even federal government. They have gotten involved. They have created their own regulation, self-regulation, and had it become institutionalized. We're crazy to fight it at some level because the premium rates are at that level. Do you want to be a But won't that also mean our insurance rates are at that level too? Yeah, but if you're billing five times as much as you were billing because you're that much poorer, I don't mind that. (laughs) And and that's that's where I was going though because like if what we're doing is so important, why aren't we charging 400, 600, whatever an hour – for our consulting services. So this is so this is where we get to your statement around the, the little guys banding together kind of stuff. We've got to look at this in our own self-interest because the people serving us don't necessarily benefit by by this. So mm. so let's pause for a quick moment and I'm gonna pick on vendors and I'm gonna do it generically because I'm not gonna pick on anybody in particular. But a Private equity-backed vendor has no interest in this happening in our space. Why? Because it limits the number of people they can sell to. Gotcha. So, so they, so any community effort by any of these private equity-backed companies has no interest in what I'm talking about because it's a it's a limiting factor to them in terms of selling. It's not in their best interest for us to do this as a, as an industry. So they're not going to advocate on our behalf. Now, with with that said, with the public companies, and I'm going to say like SolarWinds only because they're public, not because I'm saying SolarWinds would do anything like this. Sure. This is in their best interest for for there to be regulation because then that means they also get to charge a premium. I I think I I think I could safely say it is not in most large technology, publicly traded technology companies business. And let's use instances again, like Microsoft, for example. Microsoft might be a great, Microsoft, Amazon, guys that are building out large businesses like this, having their the, the direct partner businesses become regulated, I'm not necessarily certain it's good for them because it bec- it becomes a much more difficult market for them to get into because it becomes regulated in the same way, say, healthcare does. But I right. do think it can be very good for the services companies. That's where my head's at is, is that from a services company perspective, it will raise, we all talk about making, you know, we want to raise the bar of entry, right? We don't like it that anybody can hang their shingle out, but we have to, in order to make, to raise the bar on that, we've got to put some restrictions on it. And that comes from self-regulation, if nothing else. Now, I know a lot of people would say having our industry regulated Guys like Microsoft and Amazon would absolutely love that because, well, maybe Microsoft anyway, because a lot of MSPs think Microsoft is doing everything they can to like get rid of partners. You know, they're, they're making it really easy for businesses to work directly with Microsoft and they want to do away with partners and, ah, and all this other crazy. I think there's too many SKUs for the, for the end user to want to try and figure out what to buy. I think, 
So my statement is, is I don't think at all that Microsoft is anti-partner. I think Microsoft is actually very pro-partner, particularly when I look at them. Uh, and if, if, if their major, their main play is cloud, right? We know that for sure. Sh- we know that that's the way Microsoft's all in on the cloud. They really mean it. Uh-huh. So that when I have to put them, I lump the, so then I'm looking at Microsoft, Amazon, Google as the players, of the three, come on, Microsoft is clearly the one that cares about having partners of those three. If you don't think Microsoft is interested in partners, what you're probably saying, and I say this with like love of our space, they probably aren't interested in you more because you don't align with their business. If you're interested you in if you're interested in selling Azure, man, they love you. <laughs> they uh-huh. love you. They will fall all over themselves to like help you and build that business. And they want Azure business more than anything. They're going at it hard. If they if you're in the business of selling O36 or now Microsoft 365 and any of the related cloud services, they love you. They are totally in. If you're just interested in selling Windows licenses, they're not so interested. And that's where it comes yeah. down to. And um, I say that with I love, like but, that. but but I, you know, I put on my analyst hat a lot here and go, look, I can tell you that the sky is all wonderful, but if it's raining on you, like somebody needs to say that. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I say these things because I, because I want, I'm not in the business of serving up an audience as, as to an, to an event or lead or whatever it is. I'm in the business of providing some actual analysis. If you're, if you find value in it, I want you to listen to my stuff and <laughs> there's ways of supporting and getting involved, but that's the bit actually is, is for me, it's about growing an audience. And I, I people always ask me, Dave, how do you make money? I, I laugh and go, I actually sell old school ads. <laughs> like, really? on a, yeah, why not? Because I believe there's value in it. it because I, so I've been, I was a vendor for, you know, eight years, right? There's actually no way for me to get out a timely message as a vendor to a group of people. Think about it. Like if I, if I want to make an announcement as a vendor, uh, where do I do that? You guys don't listen. Nobody li- reads their email anymore. I've got it like they, everybody is, is trying to get these bits out. Why can't a va- an actual 30-second ad that tells you something be of value? I think it's totally valuable. I would listen to if it was because I don't need to sit through yet another webinar, which is an hour lo- hour of garbage content by a couple of marketers, which is really just a long you know, it buries the offer around all of this garbage value add stuff. What I really just need is the 30 seconds. Tell me what your offer is. I sell that. It can, you can buy a 30 second ad on my, on my, my show (laughs) because I think, I think there's value to that. Um, And so I look and say, look in my, in my show, there's one ad spot. There's only one ad spot. It's a five minute podcast. Can't be that much. Right. I'm going to give you four and a half minutes of hardcore value in terms of like, you know, I distill all of this news and I ask you to listen to an ad spot so that I can keep the lights on. (laughs) That's fair. It's pretty fair. Right. And then I tell my, tell the, tell the vendors that I'm selling that to, I've got an audience that listens to my stuff. Why? Because I'm putting out actual real content that I work hard on where I've got expertise in this space and I'm going to deliver some value. And I ask them to listen to my ad. Seems like a pretty, pretty fair trade for everybody. Yeah. 
So how how long does it take you to put together a five minute podcast episode? It's you know everybody goes that can't be that hard. I, I, two two and a half hours a day of uh, I mean it, and on on top of that it's the like look I'm consuming the news from as many sources as I possibly can to distill down the two or three things that I think are actually important. Hmm. You know, and so so it's it's the and where I th- where I think you can find something for. I freely admit I have biases, right? Like I am a I am I always say my I, my catnip is data. Uh, if somebody brings me a research study where they've analyzed, like they've analyzed, asked a bunch of people questions and given data, ah, oh, I love those stories because I feel like if we cover a lot, if we look at a lot of data, we can start figuring out trends. So I'm total for any you know press handler listening out there, get my attention. You'll get my attention with data. Um, but by the way, there's a million of these reports. Most of the time, there's one or two quick things you need to know. That's really what it is. So I scour them all and I report on that stuff. Totally, you can see I'm totally interested in regulation, totally interested in those areas. I'm interested in big tech and some of the moves that are having around those. And I will, you know, I look at the, uh, you know, I look at the moves of a lot of these these vendors to try and understand who's doing what. I will tell you that I don't care that much about MA. I just don't care. Uh, it's because ultimately I don't think MA everyone matters. Talks about that. Everyone talks about it. At the, at the time the MA action happens, it doesn't, it's, it's completely irrelevant. The product is the same the day before the MA and the day after the MA. Who cares? I want to see, I want to see six months or a year later what they've done. Because by the way, every MA action is exactly the same. They, Somebody buys something up. It's a revenue roll-up. They're going to put out a press release talking about how their innovation is going to now accelerate. They're going to do more for their partners. They're all the same. Uh-huh. They all – who cares, right? A bunch of people just made a bunch of money. Cool. I like that, right? I do, I'm a capitalist at heart, so I like a bunch of people making money. I hope that the founders make like a ton of money. Like that's always good for them. I applaud those things, but who cares on these M and A things? What I more am interested in is, is like, where is this going? Like in a tra- like, what are they going to do six months later? Most of the time, these M and A deals, nothing changes. In fact, it usually just slows things down, right? The the companies get all bought up. The product didn't get any better, but it also really didn't get any worse. It's just sort of the same. And then maybe Some, they won't do they anything. Does get stale, and I think we're not we're not nearly critical enough of that. Mm. You know, it's 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 the you know you buy this product and then you just don't do anything with it forever. Like, yeah, I I, I feel like we have to push back, and and this is where one of my other things that I'm and I think about this a lot. I haven't covered as much on the podcast yet, so you're getting kind of early thinking from me on this. Is it really bums me out the amount of solution providers that I've been talking to that are afraid of their vendors. And what I mean by that is, is I've, I've had these statements where they, they get like, they're focused on, well, if they, what if they take collections from me? Or what if they go, like, what if they get angry away me? Or what if the product goes away? The answer is, you're going to totally do something about it. You're the customer. <laughs> you are the customer and you're not really you're not, your business is not reliant on these tools it's totally not i want you to go take a quick look at pull up your PL, everybody 
think about where your revenue and your expenses really come down to. Revenue, you know, 100% of your revenue, where's most of your expenses? It's in your labor. It's in your people. Mm-hmm. That's where your actual expenses, your tools, what are you, what is tools, five or 10% of your expenses? Maybe? Yeah. Five to 10%. Worry about your people. <laughs> like people way more important than these tools. Like, you know, if, if you're, if you're R, RMM miraculously imploded tomorrow, do I think you'd stop serving your customers? Hell no. I think you'd instantly figure something out. It probably work for a few weeks. Yeah. Well, so did the last couple of weeks, and we all just got through it. <laughs> so, well, well, let's talk about the last couple of weeks, Dave. Uh, so, the last couple of weeks. Yeah, uh, last last couple of months. <laughs> so we're 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 in this pandemic, and yep. you know everyone's either still freaking out. Uh, because you know the world's coming to an end. Obviously, yep. yep. Um, they're they're more and more pissed off every day because the economy is collapsing. Because why on earth did we shut everything down? This is stupid. People die from the flu every day. Blah 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 blah. And then there's people like me who I just want to meet up with some friends, eat some wings, and hug people. Like uh, I, just, I, 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 I'm because I'm and I have my long list of things. I'm with you because it's like so. I'm a baseball guy. I'm a like I live in D.C. I'm a Nationals fan. Okay. You know what I was supposed to be at? I was supposed to be the banner raising like you know two months ago. Like I, you know, I'm desperate to be at a ball game. I also love going to concerts. I like I'm desperate for for live music. I haven't sat in a. I love to hang out with my buddies. I haven't sat around and had a had a beer and you know like. I had a bunch of beers, but I haven't had a beer in a bar in like, like having that fun experience. Exactly. Like I miss those things. I totally miss those things. And uh, Dave Grohl just did a great piece that came out this week talking about like the, the, the vibe of a concert. And he ends it by doing saying it will come back that you have to, you have to be comfortable with this. So uh, I think you've, uh, you've open-ended way to like, Hey Dave, what's your opinion on this? Uh, So I, I very much fall into that your camp on the like fall, thinking about I, I first off think about mourn the things that I've lost in terms of the personal stuff, because ultimately, look, we're, we live our lives to live our lives as people, not purely to run a business. Right. Like it, like stuff isn't as important as people. We always have to start with that. People are people are more important than stuff. I like some stuff, though. <laughs> so, uh, I I'm distinctly in the in the camp of thinking about this very pessimistically because that's what the data is telling me. The data is telling me this is this is this is a, we're in we're in a marathon, not a sprint. I did a video recently where I talked about the Stockdale paradox. Have you, you've read Jim Collins, Good to Great, or certainly familiar with it. I would familiar with it. Okay, so great book. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. But in there, Collins talks about the uh, James Stockdale. Now, James Stockdale was the highest ranking uh, prisoner of war during Vietnam. He was in prison for seven years. 
Uh, and they talked about they he, they asked him like you know how how did you how did you survive and he goes well you know you have to know that it will end you have to believe that it will end and you have to own your reality you have to own the existence now knowing that now is horrible but knowing that it will end and he was asked to follow because well who didn't make it and he goes oh the optimists. The optimist didn't make it. And you're know, like, well, what do you mean the optimist didn't make it? He goes, well, the guys, the guys that would say, well, we'll be home by Christmas. We'll be home by Easter. We'll be home by the next Christmas. He goes, they died of a broken heart because the holiday would come and they wouldn't get rescued and they'd lose all hope. And so the Stockdale paradox is the idea that you have to simultaneously hold the reality of your current situation in your mind, yet at the same time, never lose hope, not lose hope that it will end. The data tells me that we're in this for a while, that, that this is so, so I'm going to throw out some bummer data. Because we got to start from a data point. You know what the record is for the fastest creation of a vaccine in human history? Like a year? Four years. Four years. Four years is the record. Wait, you know there's companies already getting greenlit for like vaccine trials right now. For trials. But what I mean by what I mean by that by saying four years is from it being from the beginning to it being approved. The, the wow. record is four years. Now, I want to give you some good news. <laughs> the good news on that is, is look, the, the experts that, that are talking about this say, look, there's been a lot of advancements and we're throwing way more resources at this than we have ever thrown at a vaccine creation because we're because it is such a different scale that we're talking about creating a creative vaccine to a global pandemic where previously we've created vaccines for you know smaller things right uh-huh. so so the so the amount of researchers working on it is was less the technology is better we are moving faster on different trials there's all kinds of reasons to to think it likely will be <laughs> sooner than four years. I, I take comfort in, in a, a dear friend from college actually works, works for the NIH, works on the infectious diseases group, uh, casually said in a, in a virtual happy hour recently, well, you know, I, I emailed something to Dr. Fauci and he didn't get back to me quite as fast as I was hoping for an answer. That made me feel really good because he's a smart, super smart dude. So, <laughs> so it's, but, you know, this is, this is, but I know there's, and he's, my good friend has sort of said, like, look, we're, we're throwing different resources at this than we've ever thrown at before. Right. So you should expect some different, different reality. But I throw out the four-year data just to say, like, everybody who's looking at this sort of saying, oh, I'm worried about the next, you know, are we coming back ne- this month or next month? I don't think you're thinking in the right time frames. I just don't think you're thinking in the right time frames. I look at the uh, consumer confidence data. You know, and I, I did did a piece this weekend, and and seventy two percent of people are not ready to send their kids back to school. Wow, right? I'm I'm ready to send my kids to boarding school. Well, fair <laughs> enough. But, but if I layer on the health risk stuff, you're gonna you're gonna we're, we're gonna get less quippish, right? Because I totally get it. Like I want to get out of the house. But when you start when you start layering in 
health and safety, which by the way, is something as business people, we've never had to think about. We've never sat around thinking like, is the customer too afraid to do this? Uh-huh. Like, I've never asked that question before. The, and, and so Jay McBain had some new data that came out on Friday that I covered on the show. Um, Jay is talking about the fact that he's he believes a quarter of all solution providers will get unrecoverable, unrecoverable financial distress is the way that he, he phrased it. And I thought it was like that's the greatest way to say going out of business that I've ever heard. Uh, unrecoverable financial distress. And you said a uh, quarter. A quarter. And, and to clarify, this is a quarter of the MSPs and IT consultants yeah, are going to go out of business because they're not going to be able to survive the economic time. Uh, IDC had some new data talking about a 10% reduction in IT spending globally. Uh, they're, they are making prediction. They're talking about data that, that extends. Uh, they're look, they're, their prediction sort of talks about, they're talking about no recovery in Q2, extended slowdown Q3, Q4. If you dig into service leadership's metrics, and by the way, I'll plug them all the time. Service leadership has a 57-page document on analyzing and doing a, they call it the rapid recovery guide. Like, their guidance for solution providers on how to buckle down from a financial perspective. They've given the resource away for free. You should go get it. Um, and there's a 20 minute video that goes along with it that walks you through the data. But if you, if you do, if you look into the financial projections, uh, their, the recovery on revenue, like doesn't come back to your 2019 levels to like 2024, something like crazy, something like that. I say all of this bummer data not to like totally bum you out, but to like to, to actually ask everybody, I want you to get into marathon mode rather than sprint mode. I want you to take the lessons of the Stockdale paradox and not focus on this idea of, well, are we going to reopen this month? Are we going to reopen next month? Are we going to reopen tomorrow? Is we? And start saying, you know what? I'm in a marathon. I'm going to start looking at how I can run my business in a healthy way, assuming things are going to kind of (laughs) suck, like assuming that because if I, if we outperform, that's great, right? That's fantastic because you're doing better than your plan. But if you, if you start working and and that way you can be wonderfully delighted when things go better. But if you're building a plan that is pessimistic and working it and work your plan and assume and be cash tight and be like super careful about what you're doing, I think you can be in the 75% that make it. But I really want everyone to focus on that versus this idea of lurching and and ups and downs. And I don't want you to be the prisoners that were like hoping for Christmas and don't make it. Because I, because I think it's important for us to wrestle with this idea that it's bigger than, than we think. It probably is a lot bigger than we think. When we're comparing it against things like the Great Depression, the Spanish flu of 1918, like these are just bigger things. Uh-huh. And it's really – it's hard. Humans have a tough time with big numbers. And so I, I it's would, okay. <laughs> I would um – I'm trying to play devil's advocate here. And I sometimes have to think about how, because this is difficult. Um, Mm -hmm. All right. So Ohio, you know, we, I've got a haircut scheduled. My, 
you know, the place I go, they'll, they'll be open, uh, this weekend. They're, they're getting me in on Wednesday next week. I'm counting down the minutes Dave, sure. to win. This is, no, oh, I, I, I know. And I, I'm, I'm with you. So, so this is all about calculated risks. Okay. Right? It's about calculate. It's about calculated risks. You're going to be and and I, I lament the fact that we have not come together as a, as a, a collective nation, if we're talking about it from an American perspective, because I do look globally too. I've got, sure. I, I like to, I've, I've got background that way too. So I like to analyze other countries' responses as well. But if I think about it from an American perspective, I'm disappointed in us as a country that we have not come together to work on this problem. That, hmm. that I think we, we should all be disappointed in that because ultimately we're Americans first, right? We're Americans. We're Republicans or Democrats or we're Americans. We're supposed to be working together on this stuff. Uh, so we should be disappointed in that, but that doesn't mean that we can't work on it. Now, what I would tell you is, is you're going to be making a series of calculated risks, right? I'm with you. Like the, the, I feel like a haircut's important, right? I, I, we're both guys that live on video too, right? So right. it's like, it's bothering me, but will I, I go, I am this close, Dave, I'm this close to just doing it myself. I've done twice. I've trimmed up twice. No, um, when I do it myself, I'm going to take a like a two to the whole head. But I will also observe. Let's just be realistic, right? I used to go get my hair cut roughly every four weeks. I don't expect to be on quite that schedule anymore. I'm probably going to hold out a little bit longer, right? It bothers me now. I haven't gotten a haircut since February and it's May. So like it, it's bothering me. But you know what? I've kind of told myself, taught myself that I can go eight weeks. It's probably I can spread it out a little bit. And the reason I bring we're, we're using this example is your customers are thinking this way too, right? They're going to be making decisions to extend things, to be conservative. They're going to be making calculated risks and everybody is going to be weighing that. There's a bunch of things you're not going to do. If I told you right now, would you go to a baseball game with 40,000 people? <laughs> right. No. Right. Exactly. So, so but I'd go the, sit in a salon and get my hair done. Exactly. So there is. So, so what? What? The reason I bring this all up is, is, is that I want everybody to be realistic. I totally agree that there are lots of things that we can start figuring out how to do. I also think that we need to figure out and figure out the ways to do it that do balance that smartly. We're a super smart group of people, like, like we, we've, we've, and uh, one of uh, a, a commentator that I like to listen to always talks about America's superpower being our optimism and our ability to execute. Right? I don't think That's we're like there a, right now, man. Well, but but we can we can pull we can work on that. But it is about also be like it's again balancing that realism. I think that we need to be be looking with a critical eye to all of these kinds of things. And then try and, and try and think about this in a patient, long-term way. I I am I use I like to, you know I'm using baseball a lot on this this as my analogy because I think it helps. Right? I know the C, I know they will play baseball again. Right? I know they will play baseball again. I will see <laughs> it happen. The but I'm also twenty two season is going to be fantastic when they get exactly. <laughs> I actually, but note I didn't even notice say a number. I look forward to the, a year. I, I look forward to being back, and I will watch that first pitch, and I will cheer like nothing else. But you know what? It'll come back. Yeah. I just have to. I just have to. I just have to be patient. I have to 
recognize that that is a want, not a need. And then I have to focus on the things that you can take delight in. I can do cool stuff, right? Like I can, I can uh, still talk to friends. I can still work on interesting problems. I can work with interesting customers. We can deliver additional value. We can go out there and we can uh, try and help, you know, we can help people grow their business or we can help them figure out how to survive this. That's a victory in itself. I look and say like, you know, if I, I'm going to look at this period of time, and if people call me at the end of this and go, Dave, I listened to your stuff and you were kind of a bummer at times, uh, but but you know what? I took it to heart and my business is, business made it. I'm gonna I'm gonna pump my fist because that's that can be success, right? Absolutely. And so you just have so you just have to kind of you, you rebalance a little bit. Uh, and no, I mean the reason I I started we started this whole conversation off with like, are you healthy? Is just like, hey, that's the that's the stuff that matters, right? Mm. Are you at home? Your family healthy? Your kids okay? Parents are like it, it, like focus on the on the stuff that ultimately does matter. You can take a lot of comfort out of that stuff. But from a business perspective, I'm I'm telling everybody long term, everybody like. Buckle down. The ones that survive are the people that are going to be cash conservative, who are, uh, I'm not saying don't spend, I'm saying cash conservative. You're going to be really careful on where you invest. I think there are places to invest. There are things that you can do. You know, for example, I'm, I'll, I'll say with a smile, I'm marketing, right? Like I didn't turn out, I didn't turn off my marketing engine. In fact, in some places I'm spending more because costs have come down and I can actually try and get out there and reach the right people with the right message. But am I, am I doing equipment upgrades right now? Eh, not if, not if something doesn't break. Um, you know, as I, I'm being careful about my cash to make sure that it's spent in the right places, thinking long term. So I I want to dial this way back. Cool. Way, <laughs> way back. I'm, I'm going to lighten this up. All right. So I'm going to switch the camera over to look just at you. And uh, I see so many cool things, man. So many cool things. So you've got, uh, what's that? The old school, like the old school Nintendo VR thing behind you? It is. So, then, right, so this is, by the way, of this is one of three cameras in my office. So if we get super cool, I might be able to switch it. So uh, I recently redid my home studio to to highlight a lot of my kind of museum pieces. Yeah. Uh, I am a, I'm a retro video game guy. Uh, about six, seven years ago, I started collecting again some of that old school gear. So behind me, when I do these calls, are come some of my favorite museum pieces. So you're exactly right. You spotted the Nintendo Virtual Boy. Uh, it, it's what it's called. Uh, render. You put the you, you put that on the table. You put your head into the goggles. It's got a controller. It works. Totally works. You can play it. Uh, I've got a few games for it. Next to it is the Nintendo Power Glove. That. Mm -hmm. That ridiculous glove that was uh, that was part of it. I have my first two computers. On one side is my wow. Commodore 64. Directly, there we go. Behind my head wow. is the bread box itself. Uh, again, all works. Uh, so I could fire that up and, and play video games on it. On the other side is an Apple 2GS. 
that is, uh, we had those in my high school, and I learned to program Pascal on those and some C++ stuff on Apple IIGS machines. I've got a, up above on the shelf, I've got some Overwatch statues. I've got a, a Nationals little bobblehead. There's a Sega Genesis Mini. And then on this shelf, there's uh, a SNES Mini. That. Yeah, it's off screen, but on that shelf above it, there's an. You can see it on some of my videos on my YouTube channel. Okay, you can spot some of the things on the shelf there, and then I don't know if I know how to do it exactly on Skype on the fly. Change a camera. Oh, I, let's see. I let's think see if, if you this hover works. over the video. There, where are we? Oh, that's the other angle. My third camera is not working right today. So this is the other angle on my office. So that comes okay. in from this side. I just lost all video from you. Uh, let's put it back. I wonder if you need to turn off video, switch camera, and then turn it back on. No, now you're maybe, back. Maybe. Maybe. If I were to go, the, the one camera that isn't working. Uh, on that wall are all my retro video game rigs. Oh, so man. I have... There's a HD flat panel and an old school CRT, like a pro and a proper like Sony professional one, like from a from a TV studio that I rescued, and then working all the Nintendo lines, so Nintendo, Super Nintendo, N64, like GameCube, like the whole line, Wii, the whole line. I've got classic Xbox, cla like Xbox 360. I have an Intellivision, a ColecoVision. What? I have a Sega Dreamcast. I've got. Um, a collection of all the Nintendo handhelds. I have an Atari Lynx. I have a Sega Game Gear. Like, and lining the ceiling is another shelf that has all the cartridges. So, so my whole wow. Uh, I uh, I have a personal blog at a at I have a rate for that com where so cool. I, I have a blog post that actually walks you through the home studio and all of the retro gaming ge gear. So yeah, I've been, I've been collecting that stuff for a while. Uh, it all works. Everything's been restored. You can turn everything on right now. We can put a cartridge in and play like here in my office. That is so cool. Now it looks like you got a 360 or an Xbox One next to you. So next to me is my gaming PC rig. Um, oh, okay. Now, now Those this are just is Xbox controllers for your gaming PC. Well, there's an Xbox 360 tucked into the system that I can play on this TV. Okay. But there's also a Xbox controller for this rig. Now, I'm going to blow everybody's mind by saying my gaming rig is a little hockey puck that connects to the internet and fires up a rig in the cloud. So I've gone completely. I've gone completely cloud for my – I'm a Mac guy, actually, so the machine we're talking on is my Mac. Uh, nice. My PC rig is by a company called Shadow. They are at yeah. shadow.tech. Yeah, I've been a subscriber. I've been a subscriber there for almost two years, maybe two and a half years. Uh, 4K streaming P PC gaming works great. Um, so, works so talk to me about that because I've, I've, I've like looked into it a little bit. Uh, like literally I saw it, I think maybe last night on Apple news. I was like, what, what is that? Like, I've heard of this stuff and I forgot it existed, you know? Yep. So it, you, you pay a monthly fee and it's yeah. just a computer and you still have to buy the software. Yes. So okay. I, it is, uh, it's essentially VDI for, for personal use. Right. But it, but it is tailored for performance PC users and particularly gamers. Uh, so I have a dedicated Windows 10 instance that I am an administrator on 
that I install my own software on. Uh, so I tend to, I, I've moved, I, I'm an Overwatch, I play some Overwatch. I'm not good, by the way. I always start with, I'm not good at the games that I play, but I enjoy them. Uh, I was playing Overwatch on PC. I moved it to Switch just because I, I had to like my Switch a lot. But I play that. I play Guild Wars 2. I play uh, some Star Trek, a little bit of Star Trek Online, a little Champions Online. Uh, I was playing Star Wars The Old Republic for a long time. Play all of those. I can install my own Steam, you know, Steam, all the games. I install them on the, the machine. I fire it up. I have their little, uh, they call it the Shadow Ghost, which is a little hockey puck thing which connects my keyboard monitor mouse, my cabling, you know, like the, the uh, audio and it's got an ethernet line and I do everything ethernet so that I'm, you know, getting rid yeah. of the Wi-Fi problem and I get 4k streaming gaming. Get and you 4K. don't notice a, a lag or anything. I do not notice. I always, the reason I always start start with these, I'm not good enough because it's like, I, maybe there might be some pro gamer that could tell the difference. I can't. Uh, it does not bother me. I have on occasion gotten that pixelation effect, mm -hmm. you know, where like the same thing that you might yeah, see like on a Netflix. Right. But that's so rare as to I can think of two or three times in all the times I've used it. And most of the time it's just perfectly seamless. Um, so and it's I, I think I pay 24 bucks a month for this. It's really not bad. It's really not bad, not for a, a machine with like a full, and it's, I want to say I've got 12 gigs of RAM in my dedicated machine and a, whatever their high, the highest end uh, NVIDIA card that it mm -hmm. can be on that. It works great for my needs. Um, yeah. So, that, so, that's the, so that's my PC gaming rig. So um, you said you're a Mac guy. I like you I so am. much more already. So am I. I'm <laughs> in my Mac. Yeah. Um, I lost my question. Dang it. Oh, you you said you've got three different uh, cameras. So what are yes. you using for cameras? So I'm still the Logitech 920s, the C920s. I have a I have three of them here. Um, oh. I've always really liked them. Um, I think and I, I take the time to get the settings and the white balance stuff right. I use uh, you probably see on screen I'm, I'm pretty well lit. Lighting matters. I My office is entirely set up with hue lighting so I will show off for a moment and, and flip the button like I can dynamically I can dynamically change the lighting so what I've done is, is I've got nice yellow warm light on my front I've got blue light to the back that dims my background so that my face stand my face stands out uh you know and and the light is all indirect so it's hitting the wall and then then coming on to me and i have the advantage of my wife is a video producer so she can come in and go oh you have to tweak this with your light or if you do this with with that you'll get better you know better stuff so that's why why i always say you work with pros on some of these bits so i uh i too have fancy lighting i'm i'm still trying to play around and figure out like what makes sense but um i went out and i got Elgato key lights. So yep. I've got this light here. Um, this is my my actual key light, and I can I can do a dim on it. I can uh, I can change the temperature of the light. Yep. I I keep it at sixty five hundred, and then I've also got a fill light. And my my goal is to try and get a more cinematic look on the lighting which is why both of them are are different uh 
they're they're even different. Like I can touch this one. That one's right. so far away. That one's like five feet away from me. I, I couldn't touch it if I wanted to. Yeah. The other thing about my design is, is if, if you've seen any of my YouTube videos, they're not this. Like I do full standups. I've got a teleprompter rig that I do for that nice. for some of that kind of stuff. Like I'll do, I'll stand usually like over there or sometimes over here. Um, if we get into the nerd stuff, like just for fun, I've invested in, I, I bought a pair of those retractable clotheslines for hotel rooms. Oh, uh, and they're mounted on the walls in two very strategic places. So I can pull a line out and then I can clip quilts onto the, onto the, onto them. And that can act as sound deadeners. Yep. If I need sound deadening for, for certain ways that I do things, they can also block. I have one little, one little basement light in here, uh, a window at least. And so I can block that if I need to, there's a blackout curtain. So I've really like spent some time to think about like, what are all, how are the ways that I can use all the different angles mm -hmm. for different stuff? depending on the kind of video that I want to make. Um, so normally I do my stand-up like editorial pieces, like with either kind of that corner or this center as the background. And I do calls like this, like, you know, with this kind of look. That's awesome. So this camera here uh, was a C920. It is now a Sony Alpha 6400, which is why I can put my hand up and you see, I guess I should change... I can put my hand up here and you'll see it is still focused on my face because right. I've got it in manual focus mode and it doesn't care what I do. And then I also went as far as, you know, they've got those Elgato um, stream deck devices. That's, that's what I have. I have one on my desk here that I use for that. So I was like, you know, I can't justify a couple hundred bucks for one of these awesome things because I can't buy the little one gotta buy the big, gotta go bigger home man i do have the 15 button one yeah so i would get like the 30 button one because why not i well, don't know what i would do with it but i would get it so i'd tell you the 15 does fine because it's actually context sensitive it can switch oh, based on what app you're using so i find that the 15 works just perfectly for me but you've got yours on your phone. I've got the Stream Deck app, which, again, I'll bring up, and you can't see it at all. But if I hold it back here, you can see it's even got little previews of of what we're doing. Very um, cool. So uh, I'm using Ecamm Live. Um, okay. And I'm only using it to record. I'm not using it for the streaming features. Eventually, right. I might get there. But for now, I'm just not comfortable doing, like, a live stream with it because... Um, I would rather, so with Zencaster, we're doing um, individual tracks. So I'm able to download my audio and your audio. I pop it into Logic Pro 10. I do yep. my post-production to it. Um, and then I pop everything in the final cut and I, I finalize it all. And then I yeah. put it up on YouTube, Podbean, and then Podbean kind of disperses it everywhere to uh, Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Like, I'm freaking everywhere, man. It's awesome. Yep. Well, I've got the same system for the podcast. I've actually, I have been doing some live stream. I did some live streams for a while. Um, and I'm totally capable of doing them and ready to do more of them. It, there's an element of, I'm trying to understand what, the space needs and wants, um, you know, it, it, to, to do a little of the, the why, you know, cause the, the tech is super fun, but the why I, I really am trying to, to, I don't want to compete with 
people that are doing uh, MSP growth, MSP advice, like that, like the stuff you're doing is that you know, we both know there's a bunch of players in in this mm-hmm. in the space that are trying that stuff. And I think you guys are all doing really interesting stuff. And I look and go, I could be there, yeah, but I would feel like, but I feel like it's, a, I would be doing a me too play. And I was, I said, you know what? It may, I want to try something else. And so I'm looking for the space of where can I add value that is uniquely the voice that I'm trying to get. You can see that, like, I mean, we talked a lot at the beginning about these like hard questions, mm-hmm. like, like, that you almost have to embrace that full time if you're going to take that on. That's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of research. I'm tracking down, you know, politicians and I'm trying to track down trade organizations. Like, I mean, part of, uh, I don't, I'm not quite comfortable with the phrase journalist yet. I like, still like to say analyst for what I do, uh, but it has too much journalism in it uh, now. And that, that requires a bunch of time. So, I would be doing if I want to do that well. I've got to put a bunch of time in on that, and so I feel like I can augment what guys like you are doing by by being the guy that you can call and say, "Well, Dave knows fifty stats on <laughs> on this. I need that expertise for this problem," and I feel like I'm a better use there to augment what you're doing versus trying to like do something of, of that of my own where I can go much deeper in these certain areas. And then I look to say like, how do, how does the audience want to consume it? That's mm. where you know, for me, podcasting was a great place to start. I added the editorial videos. I've been kind of doing one a week uh, of these you know, videos that I re- released both on the podcast or as a YouTube video. And I also probably, if people have been watching me, I release the snippet videos daily that you that are generally across all my social platforms where you can get like a piece of a story to hear like, oh, that's what he's, that's what he's up to today. Um, and then there's a link to, to, to listen to the whole episode. Huh. Yeah. Well, Cause I've been, tr- I've been really trying to think about like the, the, like the, where, what the community wants. Uh, you know, I, I'm ready. I would do live streams if like on a regular scheduled basis, if that's what the community wants, but I don't want to live stream just for the sake of live streaming, you know, like the flip it on just to be on. It's the, what does the community want? Like if the community wants me to do a Q and a or a sure, I'm ready to do all of that kind of stuff. It's just a matter of what the listeners are looking for. That's really awesome, man. Well, Hey, um, We've been at this for an hour and a half already. I I don't know about you. I would love some lunch. <laughs> so I I say anytime you want to come back here, Dave, and and talk about uh, you know pandemic or uh, M and A or pricing or <laughs> <laughs> all. Well, well, I tell you what. Let's cha- let's let's challenge. Let's make this because because for me this is this is ultimately where this all goes. Uh-huh. I really think about myself now. As I am the analyst for solution providers that you can't afford, right? You can't afford a guy. You can't go to Gartner. You can't go to Forrester and get a question answered by one of their analysts by going that route right now. If you're a, if you're a typical MSP, right? Yeah, absolutely. You, you, but you can call me. Yeah. If, 
I, I'll that's what I do is I want to li- I want to hear from the audience. I want I want questions. I want to hear from my listeners. What do you need me to be looking into providing analysis? Because I think that there's value for everybody. I my tagline on the on the website is voice of the solution provider. That's what I think about as as when I think about who my audience is, who I'm delivering value to. It's you need a guy to ask that question to and you want an opinion. I've got those. <laughs> and I will tell you, I'll tell you why I have that opinion, why I feel that way, where the data is coming from, and then give you my recommendation. If that's helpful, great. And if you don't like it, tell me that too. I don't sit over here saying like, I'm right on everything that I do. If somebody is listening and saying, Dave, you are totally wrong. And here's why. I so welcome that. Like, I want to hear that. That I'm not sitting over here saying I have all the answers. What I'm saying is I'm advocating on your behalf. Tell me what you think. Tell me what you want me working on. And let's let's make this a conversation. Let's speak truth to power. There's a lot of big companies. There's a lot of money in this space. If you don't want to say it, I will. (laughs) If you're a small little solution provider and you're scared to say something, I'll say it. I'm happy to say it, right? Like, so you need somebody standing up for you. That's what I'm up to. That's awesome. Well, well, guys, check out Dave's podcast. Go to um, mspvoice.com. MSPradio.com. I'm sorry, mspradio.com. I I got voice, you know, this, you know, voice of the solution provider stuck in my head or from earlier. So yeah, mspradio.com. I'm sorry, Dave. All um, good. Absolutely. Go. Go check that out and check out his podcast. You do it every day? You're I do crazy. it every single day. It's, I've, got, I've, ha- I've, I've got having fun. these recordings today, man. <laughs> I do a podcast every single day. And I do the weekly Killing It podcast with Carl Polachek and Ryan Morris, too. So and that's nice. a weekly one. So, yes, but I do, I do the five minutes every single day. All right. Well, I think maybe you and I will have to discuss uh, collaborating on something as well anytime steve i'm totally up anytime you need anything let me know i'm happy to help out thanks dave so much for for popping in there go go play with your nintendo glove i'm gonna have lunch (laughs) and then i'm gonna play some games (laughs) awesome have a good one man take care everybody